Uh, welcome back to Centerpoint, and uh, tonight uh, we continue as we have been looking at the doctrine of the church. Um, the, the notes uh, tonight are a little bit higgledy-piggledy. I, I had an appointment with Helga this afternoon, which kind of messed up my afternoon. This is uh, Helga, the, the stretcher, the... the, the the physical therapist, and uh, it was not it was not pretty. Um, let's uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we come together again as company of your people, as the church, the body and bride of Christ. As we gather on a Wednesday evening, with the intent of learning and studying, getting to grips with Scripture, what your Word teaches, not just in its microcosm, but in its, in its big picture. We want to understand, especially tonight, what would be regarded as the marks of the church. And we pray for the help of your Spirit to give us illumination and wisdom, and that we might approach this not simply from an academic point of view, but that we might as a church reflect these marks. So bless us, we pray, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me draw your attention to uh, the cover and uh, the quotation uh, on the front cover from the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed uh, of 381. Uh, and we believe in one holy, universal, or Catholic and apostolic church, one holy, universal, and you'll see, if you can read the Greek, uh, it's the word Catholic, an apostolic church. And uh, this uh, statement, of course, especially the statement about Catholicity uh, is repeated in the Apostles' Creed, often becomes a point of issue and uh, difficulty for some Christians, uh, the, the affirmation that we believe in, in the Catholic Church or the Catholicity of the Church, what does that mean and so on. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but these are the so-called four um, marks, uh, notes in, in Latin, the, the term notes or notae uh, was used in Latin. Uh, these are the four essential uh, characteristics, attributes, if you like, of the church. Uh, its oneness, its holiness, its universality or Catholicity, and apostolicity. Uh, and I've cited it uh, on the cover from the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed or uh, as it also occurs in the earlier version of that creed, the so-called Nicene Creed of 3, 
25. So, so I'm going to look at these four marks together and then ex expand a little on perhaps some other marks uh, that um, were elaborated upon during the time uh, of the Reformation. Uh, but first of all, uh, oneness. Uh, we believe in one church. Uh, the essential oneness of the church, that there aren't two churches, uh, but one church. Uh, this, of course, has become something of a, a, a point of contention uh, between, uh, say, Protestant churches of the Reformation and um, the Catholic Church, and, and for that matter, the Orthodox, um, Eastern Orthodox uh, Church. Uh, since the time of the apostles, the death of the apostles uh, in particular, uh, th there, there was, of course, a, a fairly rapid uh, declension of uh, doctrine and um, organization in the church, particularly in the mid to late second century. So that by the time, by the third century, uh, the fathers, the church fathers, and one in particular, Cyprian of Carthage, um, emphasized uh, the, 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 the bishopric, the, the, the collection of bishops as an expression of the essential unity of the church. As, as the church expanded uh, through Europe and beyond, um, Cyprian, Cyprian of Carthage, who died uh, somewhere around the middle of the third century, uh, 250-something, uh, he died, and uh, defined the unity of the church in terms of um, an idea, a formation of a, a college of bishops, uh, which constituted th those, that, that college of bishops constituted the unity of the church. And uh, a saying arose um, in Latin, extra ecclesium nulla salus, outside of the church there is no salvation. So, so, so there's a, a, a development here due to the fragmentation of the church in the second century. There's an attempt in the third century to, to define uh, how that unity is expressed. And it was expressed uh, by folk like Cyprian of Carthage in terms of a, a college of bishops. And eventually, of course, with that bishopric having its uh, see and, and head in, in Rome, of course. And, and the idea that we're familiar enough with, with... Uh, with um, uh, how the Roman Catholic Church would define the unity of the church in terms of the Roman Catholic Church with its, with its college of bishops and with its, with its head bishop uh, as, as the Pope. And um, Augustine, you know, Augustine is, uh, is, is in both camps here. Augustine was, uh, was liked and upheld by the Protestant Reformation because of his doctrine of grace, because of his understanding of the way of salvation, but he was also upheld and revered by the Catholic Church because of his doctrine of the church. Uh, there's a famous statement by B.B. Warfield in the 19th century uh, regarding Augustine that, 
that it's the triumph of the doctrine of grace over the doctrine of the church. But, but in actual fact, the Roman Catholic Church reveres Augustine as much as the Protestant Church reveres Augustine uh, for entirely different reasons. But in this case, um, the, the Roman Catholic Church, especially the medieval Catholic Church, Thomas Aquinas and others, uh, revered uh, Augustine because of his espousal and, and uh, imprimatur on uh, Cyprian's view uh, of how the unity of the church should be expressed in terms of a college of uh, bishops and so on. Now today, you know, we live in a culture um, that wants desperately, uh, and an ecclesiastical culture that wants uh, desperately to um, ex- express that there is one church, even though there are many faiths and there are many baptisms, but there's one church. There are many different roads, different avenues uh, to, to salvation, uh, but essentially there is one church. And there's an attempt to um, mend... Uh, the schism uh, between uh, Catholicism and, and Protestantism. And there have been various attempts at that, both uh, here uh, in North America and uh, uh, evangelicals and Catholics together would be one movement of that and uh, attempts, uh, similar attempts in, in Britain, uh, a similar disagreement, I think, uh, over... Uh, over uh, the likes of, say, Jim Packer on the one hand and, and say, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on the other. So, so there, been, there, there are ongoing uh, debates and discussions as to what does the unity of the church actually mean. Let's look at Ephesians 4, uh, just, just one text here for a minute. Ephesians 4, 13 through 16. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And, and of course, there are many things in that passage, but the essential point of that passage is the unity of the body of Christ. And the unity of the body of Christ, not just thought of locally in terms of the church in Ephesus, but the unity of the body of Christ in terms of a concept of the church. That there is one church, although there are many churches in Ephesus, in many of them in Galatia, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Rome, uh, in Antioch, in Jerusalem, and so on. One church. Uh, John 10 Uh, 14 through 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. There shall be one flock 
and one shepherd. One flock and one shepherd. The unity of the church. There's, there's, there's just one church. Or uh, the prayer, uh, the so-called high priestly prayer in uh, John 17, um, at the heart of which, you remember, is that petition that they may be one. Jesus is praying to the Father, and just as, just as we are one, one God, two persons, but one, one God, the Father and, and Jesus, that they may be one as we are one. The, the unity of the church. Now, of course, this is expressed... Um, Uh, the unity of the church, of course, in Roman Catholic terms, and, and not just medieval Roman Catholic terms, but in, in, in Vatican II terms, uh, even, in, even in the 1994 uh, Catholic Catechism, uh, here's, here's how they understand it. The Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ, namely as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which, can, which he can always exercise unhindered. Right? There isn't an iota of a difference between that statement, and that's a, that's a 1994 statement about a Roman Catholic idea of uh, the unity of the church and medieval church. So, so there hasn't been a change from Vatican I to Vatican II, that the, that the unity of the church is the unity of the Roman Catholic Church in its administration of its seven uh, sacraments with the Bishop of Rome as the head and, and pontiff and vicar and one who can exercise full authority at whatsoever time he pleases unhindered. Well, uh, the Protestant Reformation, of course, disagreed with that. Uh, it affirmed uh, the statement uh, of the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed that there's only one church. But that church has to be defined in terms of what are the marks of that church. Unity is one of them, that, that there is only one church. But there are other marks now that will, will need to be added to define what constitutes that one church. Who who is in that church and who is outside of that church. Now, I have four inferences here, at least this morning before I saw Helga, I thought there might be four, and, uh, and let me suggest uh, maybe four of them. Uh, one inference here is the relationship between unity and truth. Remember the high priestly prayer, it's a prayer, um, sanctify them through your word, your word is truth. So, so outside of truth, there cannot be unity. Um, think of, uh, think of uh, Unitarians or, or, or um, 
the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, for example, uh, neither of which constitutes the true Church of Christ because they're outside of the truth. Because they affirm, they affirm a different system of truth. Uh, the oneness of the church and its relationship to, to truth. Uh, a second inference would be uh, the idea of the oneness of the church and the diversity of the church. There is one church, but the church in Rome looked, and I, I mean the church in Rome in Paul's day, I don't mean the Catholic Church, I mean just the church in Rome where, 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 where Paul was a prisoner, that church. That church was different, it had different characteristics and qualities to, say, the church at Philippi or the church in Ephesus. Think of the seven churches that Jesus writes letters to in Revelation, and each one has a, has a slightly different feel to it. So there's a relationship between unity and truth, but there's also a relationship between unity and diversity, that the church of Christ consists of churches that are not cookie cutters. It's been wonderful to see how Grace, our own church plant, and now our own sister church, Grace, is in many ways so, many, so, so different, wonderfully different from First Press. I don't need to spell that out to you. I mean, that's, that's fairly obvious. Um, it has a different feel, a different character. Churches can be traditional. Churches can be contemporary. Churches can, be, can be, have, a, have a, a, a younger membership. Churches can be city churches as opposed to uh, in the suburbs or in the country. And, and, and very often that, that brings with it a certain diversity. So there's one church, but there can also be diversity. Another inference would be uh, unity and the mutual obligation of individual members of that church to maintain that unity. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 6. In, uh, in the context of um, sexual immorality. It's, it's, it's not just you, but it's the body. If you sin, then you bring the body into, disre into disrepute. There, there are consequences. So we are to strive, actively strive to maintain the unity of the church. How do you do that? How do you strive to maintain the unity of the, of the church of Christ? And, and I, mean, I mean, first of all, the local church, the, the church in which you're a member. We, we, we take vows at the time of a baptism, for example. We renew a covenant at the beginning of January, and, and part of that is to seek to maintain the unity of the body of Christ, that, that we are that we are actively involved as church members in fulfilling our responsibility as church members with respect to one another. It's called fellowship or communion or community. You know, back in the 70s, the word was fellowship. The word today is community. It's the same word. 
Um, another implication of, of the unity of the church is what we were thinking about last Wednesday evening. And what uh, Paul talks about in uh, Galatians with respect to Peter's uh, behavior with, with regard to the Gentiles. And that, is, and that is that there isn't one church that is white and one church that is Hispanic and one church that is black and one church that is something else. Or, or a church for old people and a church for young people. Or a church for men and a church for women. That, that, that in the gospel... And as that gospel manifests itself in the life and community of the church, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor free, bond, Greek, Scythian. We're all one in Christ. That's another implication that has to be worked out in terms of the unity of the church. Now, in my experience of talking about the marks of the church, it raises often more questions than it actually answers. You know, where, where is the dividing line on the issue of truth? How much truth do you need to deny before you are no longer a church and you're something else? And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm not sure that I can answer that question as to where the line is. I, I know that at a certain point you have crossed the line. If, if you deny justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, you have crossed a line. And it is no longer, whatever else it is, it is no longer a church. Now, it, it all gets rather complicated. Does that mean that within, within something, you know, the Westminster Confession says that, that some churches are purer than others. And some have become synagogues of Satan. I'm quoting the Westminster Confession of Faith now. Can true believers find themselves in churches that are less pure? Yes, of course. Well, we could go on, but that's just the first one. Uh, uh, oneness. Uh, holiness. Uh, the holiness, the, 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 the sanctity of the church. Again, uh, Jesus' high priestly uh, prayer in... Uh, John 17, and let me just pick it up at verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Well, in English, of course, we, don't, we, we use a different word, sanctify. If we were being literal here, we would say holify. It, it's, it's the word holy. Holiness, there's no, there's no verb form in English of holy. We, we, we have to use the word sanctify, but, but it's, it's, it's holify, make holy. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Or First uh, Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians chapter three, uh, and at verse. Uh, let me just pick it up at verse sixteen. Do do you not know that you are God's temple, and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. He's speaking not just to individuals here in Corinth, he's speaking to the church in Corinth as a body, as a temple in which the Holy Spirit resides and therefore is holy, set apart. What might be, um, what might be some of the inferences of the holiness of the church? Let's, let's ponder a few of them. First of all, uh, do you remember 
and I hope you do, and maybe you don't now, but do you remember uh, last year sometime when we were talking about the doctrine of sanctification? Everybody remember that? We, we talked about the application of redemption. We talked about the order salutis. And we talked about the doctrine of sanctification. Remember we made a, a distinction between, between definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. We made a distinction between what's sometimes called legal or forensic or positional sanctification. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says that you are holy, you are sanctified. First Corinthians 1, 1 and 1, 2, you are sanctified. This is, this is legally, forensically, positionally true. You are set apart in Christ. But that's true not just individually, that's true corporately as a body. The church is sanctified. The church is set apart in, in union with Christ. The church is his body. He is the head of it. The bride and the bridegroom. Right? So, so just as we distinguish between positional sanctification and progressive sanctification, so in the individual, so we also distinguish in the corporate church a distinction between between. A forensic, legal, positional, definitive aspect of sanctification. The church is different. But the church also needs to grow in holiness. And grow in sanctification. And grow in grace. A second inference here. uh, And that is uh, the idea of corporate holiness. Not just the idea of individual holiness. You know, we, we, we think of each other and, and, and we make assessments, biblical assessments, that this person is more holy than that person. This, this person has grown in sanctification more than that person. Well, the same is true of churches. There are churches that are more holy, more sanctified than other churches. They, they demonstrate that holiness. They, they, they demonstrate that separation to the Lord, that life of consecration, that life of obedience to the law of God. They demonstrate that in, in more tangible, vivid, observable, measurable ways than others. A third inference here, and that is, and one that we'll be coming back to towards the end of this little, little, little series uh, in about a month's time. We want to talk about the idea of the church and the world. Now, uh, m- my observation uh, over the last 35, 40 years or so is uh, that, that the church goes, goes through phases of swings and roundabouts. There are times when the church wants to be separate from the world. It, 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 wants, it wants to behave, it wants to, to be seen as being entirely different from the world. And then, and I think we're in a different phase at the minute, I think, I think and I'm generalizing, but I, I, I think you, you, you may disagree with me, but my, my sense at the minute is that the church, and I mean, I mean the, the Reformed church, I mean the church that you and I know and love, not, not necessarily First Pres, but, but the church these days wants, 
wants to be part of the world. It wants to witness to the world, but in, in wanting to be part of the world and witnessing to the world, it has sometimes become like the world. We, we have these discussions sometimes in, in, in worship. What does, what does godly worship, what does sanctified holy worship look like? Um, and, and, and sometimes, sometimes th- there's, a, there's a, a discernible spectrum here uh, of, of separation from the world, of, not, of the church being, being in an entirely different kingdom to the world, and, and you have the idea of two kingdoms. There's the world, and then there's the church. Uh, and, then, and then there's a view of the church being in the world and being a salt, salting influence in the world and a... And a, and a, and a uh, a city that's set on a hill uh, and, and uh, uh, engaging in a robust world and life view. But, but at a certain point, it becomes undiscernible from the world. So, so one, of the, one of the issues, one of the influences here of the holiness of the church is how does the church, how does the church manifest its otherworldliness, its holiness, and still be in the world? Now, it's not a different question for the church as it is for the individual Christian. How do you as an individual Christian play your part in the world and still declare and manifest your holiness, godliness, obedience to God's law? So, oneness, um, holiness, um, Catholicity. Well, this is an issue that, uh, as I said, is raised in the Apostles' Creed, I believe, in the Catholic Church. We say it every Sunday. And it causes some some difficulties, some problems. And uh, many of you know and and have seen and witnessed in many churches of of our like. Uh, Bulletins, for example, will have little footnotes. uh, and, And in the footnote it says, by... Uh, Catholic, we mean universal, and sometimes there'll be a line or two, or and in one instance I saw an entire paragraph of an explanation, and, and my view is that if you have to go to that extent to explain what the word means, you better not use the word, because ask no questions for conscience sake, but once, once, you start, once you start having to explain it to that degree of detail, conscience is definitely now being engaged. And, and the word here... Uh, um, uh, the, 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 the word um, for, for Catholicity here. Uh, I, I believe in, in, in one uh, holy Catholic church, meaning, meaning universal church. Uh, so listen uh, to a quotation here from uh, Zacharias Ursinus. Uh, Zacharias Ursinus was one of the great heroes of the Reformation, German taught at the University of Heidelberg, um, author, almost single-handedly author of the so-called Heidelberg uh, Catechism. And uh, Ursina says, the church is called Catholic, and he's got, he's got three points. First, in respect to place, because it's spread over the whole world. It's not, it's not just in one location, it's all over the world. And it's not tied or restricted to any particular place, kingdom, or certain succession. 
The Catholicity of the church in this respect commenced in the time of the apostles because prior to this time the church was circumscribed in narrow limits being confined to the Jewish nation. Where would you have found the church in the days of Ezekiel? Well, almost in one zip code. What happens after Pentecost? Well, the church expands from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. The universality of the church in relationship to place. Second, in respect to men, meaning here, this is 16th century, men meaning, meaning men and women, uh, in respect to men because the church is gathered from all classes of every nation. And thirdly, in respect to time, because it will endure throughout every period of the world. I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. So what are we saying when we say the Apostles' Creed and we say, I believe in the Catholic Church? We're saying the church, I believe in the church that existed in the time of John Calvin in Geneva. Or the time of Augustine in Hippo in uh, North Africa. Or in the time of Chrysostom. Or in the time of John Elias in Anglesey in North Wales at the beginning of the 20th century. Or, or uh, in, in, in 2015 in, in hundreds of thousands of locations uh, all uh, over the world. And when we gather on a Sunday morning, we're gathering, of course we're gathering in different time zones. Some people are still sleeping. In, uh, you know, in California, they're still asleep. They're not even up. When we're worshiping at 8.30, they're still in Gaga land. But folks in uh, Australia, for, for, for Helga's got the better of me now. Am I, am I going the right? Where's the, where's the daytime? It's in the Pacific somewhere. But, but in Australia, they've, they've worshiped there on their Monday morning. They're at work. They've, they've worshipped, they've gone to bed, they've, they've got up and they've gone to work. But we believe in, in one Catholic church that transcends time and transcends space and transcends races and nations. That's what we mean. I don't know what my two inferences were. Um, but those for sure. And, and then fourthly, um, apostolicity, the, the apostolic church. Now, of course, here, again, uh, this mark of apostolicity uh, has, been, has been muddled uh, because of Catholic insistence that I believe in the apostolic church. One apostolic church means that we're all linked to a succession, uh, un, unbroken succession of uh, of uh, apostles through bishops and and head bishops and and popes all all going back to Peter as the first uh, pope of Rome and so on the apostolicity of the church well what do, what what do we mean when we say I believe in the apostolicity of the church what Paul means in Ephesians chapter two that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does that mean? Well, what the apostles believed in, what the apostles wrote, what the apostles preached, 
apostolic doctrine. Now, uh, these, uh, four, uh, these four marks, uh, oneness, holiness, Catholicity, apostolicity, uh, Luther, uh, Luther, as I, as I write here, um, had seven marks of the church, um, the holy word of God, the sacrament of baptism, um, communion, the, the Lord's Supper, what he called the holy sacrament of the altar, the the office of the keys exercised publicly, uh, the calling, consecration, and ordination of um, ministers, prayer, public praise, and thanksgiving, and seventhly, the sacred cross, meaning, meaning suffering. I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, th- three additional marks w- were singled out by uh, the reformers and subsequent uh, Puritans of the 17th century. And, and, these, and these find their way into, uh, uh, into the confessions, uh, Westminster Confession, for example. Uh, one is the preaching of the word, the, 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 the proper preaching of the word. One of the marks of the church is, is the preaching of the word. Faithfulness to Scripture. Now, what does that mean? You know, we're not about to unchurch, say, those who are not five-point Westminster Confession subscribing Calvinists. What about our Baptist brothers and, and, and sisters? No, the, the idea of preaching of the Word here was nuanced in, in, into an understanding that there are that, that there are certain fundamental doctrines, that there are certain things that are first of all, and there are things that are second of all, and there are things that are third of all. You know, Paul s- speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. There, there are things that are first of all, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and on the third day was raised again. So the doctrine of the death of Christ as a substitutionary offering for sin and the resurrection of Christ are cardinal doctrines. Outside of those doctrines, there is no proper preaching of the word. Um, the administration of the sacraments was another area uh, that uh, the Reformation uh, regarded as, uh, as, uh, as one of the essential marks of the church. Not... Um, you know, not, not the mode of baptism, but the meaning and intent of baptism. What does baptism mean? So, for example, somebody who believes that's, that, that the application of the waters of baptism are in themselves, ex opere operato, regenerative. Those who believe in so-called baptismal regeneration, that a person is actually regenerated through the waters of baptism, that, that would be viewed as an improper understanding of the meaning of baptism. What is the meaning of baptism? Baptism is a sign and seal that says in Christ there is salvation. It points to Christ. It points to the gospel. So, so the, 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 
the, the, the, the right understanding and, and intent of the sacraments would, was another mark of the church. Uh, a third mark of the church was the exercise of discipline. Now this has sometimes been misunderstood uh, even among, uh, even among uh, uh, those who would, who would be, say, within our own uh, circles here. Uh, what was originally intended, I think, by the reformers, by discipline, was not church discipline in the sense of, of censure and excommunication so much, not that so much, which is how it's often understood now, but discipline in the sense of structure and organization of the church, that the church needs some discipline, it needs some cohesion, it needs... Knox, for example, wrote the books of discipline, John Knox. But the books of discipline are first and foremost about church government and about church structure and organization, that the church needs some level of organization and structure as a, as a, as a, as a qualifying mark. Well, another mark uh, that uh, Luther refers to here, and let me just allude to it uh, very quickly here, um, and that is suffering. It's not one of the classical marks. It's not one of the four marks of the, of, uh, that Cyprian alluded to or, or that found its way into the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. It's, it uh, wasn't one of the so-called three extra marks uh, of the Reformers, but, but Luther spoke of it, the mark of the cross, the mark of suffering. What did Jesus say? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up a cross and follow me. And not just individually, but corporately, as a body. I sometimes think that we need to ask ourselves that question. If we're not suffering, are we really the church of Christ? Because the degree to which we are Christ's church will be the degree to which the world and Satan will single us out for persecution. I think we're living in a time when we see the persecution of the church all too clearly in certain parts of the world today, and we're very aware of it. But at the same time, we're also aware of the fact that we need to ask ourselves that question. To what extent have we so become like the world that the world doesn't trouble itself to persecute us anymore? So for Luther, suffering... Standing up for Christ and suffering the consequences of that was an, was an essential mark of the church. I, I rather think that he was right. Now, these marks, um, my, my sense is that whenever we talk about the marks of the church, they, they, are, they raise more questions than they answer. Because they are, they, are, they are projections in a certain direction, but they don't, define, they don't define the line at which you, you, you cross and you are no longer the church of Christ. How much disunity do you, do you have to have? How much un, unsanctifiedness, unholiness? How, how much... How much uh, 
how much uh, of a denial of the universality of the church that, that, you, that you become so focused on, on, on yourself as a single entity and, and you lose that right to call yourself the church of Christ. Now, those are very difficult questions to answer. I think these marks are here uh, in church history, especially as, as uh, the church has tried to discern what the Bible teaches about the church, to call us again and again to ask ourselves the question, how much, how much do I actually reflect as a church, as a corporate body, as a, as a single entity of first Presbyterian Church or as a denomination, and we haven't even begun to ask how does, how does the idea of a denomination deny the concept of the oneness of the church? Like where does denominations, where does that fit into the idea of, of, of the oneness of the church? How much doctrine needs to be denied before, before you lose the right to be called the church of Christ and you become something else? Well, let's pray together. Father, we've just begun to scratch the surface of issues that are huge and enormous and remain to this very hour issues of debate and controversy and difficulty. And we want, above everything else tonight, to be a church that reflects the church of the New Testament. So help us, Lord especially to be a church that is concerned for truth and a church that's concerned also for unity within that espousal of truth and a church that is eager to demonstrate holiness built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets and perhaps too a church that is willing to suffer for the honor and integrity of Christ. Lord, help us, we pray. Forgive us all our sins. We thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.